Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. You know, I loved my dad, who was a spectacular person. I didn't want his life to be defined by how it ended. But I slowly came to realize how wrong that was. And that, in fact, it was that stigma that we attach to mental illness and depression and suicide. It's that stigma that keeps so many people from getting the help they need. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Thielman. My guest this week is David Axelrod, former Obama presidential advisor, now serving as director and co-founder of the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics. David, thanks so much for joining us. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Franny, uh, likewise, I, every time I talk to you, I'm reminded of the fact that I'm talking to a Hall of Fame City Hall correspondent, the best I've ever seen. So um, uh, it's an honor to be with you always. Thank you. We have known each other for more than 40 years. I hate to admit that. It's true. <laughs> it dates the both of yeah. us. I know. I met you when you were in grade school. <laughs> I was, no, I was an infant. Now, you were a Chicago <laughs> Tribune reporter covering Jane yes. Byrne. I was yeah. a reporter doing the same for WIND Radio. But it was a long time before I knew the deep, dark secret that so painfully shaped your life, and that is your father's suicide, yeah. which you wrote about yeah. so poignantly and eloquently again this week. Tell mm -hmm. us why it took you so long to talk openly about a problem of depression and mental illness that has remained in the shadows for far too long. Yeah, well, it's a really good question, and it's one that I've wrestled with myself. And ultimately, uh, what I concluded, uh, my, I first wrote about this uh, in, in 2006, about 30 years after, 32 years after my father's uh, death. And um, I, I realized that I didn't talk about it because somehow I thought it was a source of shame, a source of embarrassment that I didn't want. You know, I loved my dad, who was a spectacular person. I didn't want his life to be defined by how it ended. But I slowly came to realize how wrong that was. And that, in fact, it was that stigma that we attach to mental illness and depression and suicide. It's that stigma that keeps so many people from getting the help they need. And what I discovered when I started writing and talking about this is how many people are struggling uh, with with these uh, challenges and 
how important it was for them to hear that, no, this is not a defect of character. This does not make you a weak person or a bad person. It makes you a human being. And just as people have cancer and uh, heart disease and all manner of other physical uh, maladies and challenges, a mental illness is an illness as well and needs to be treated. Uh, and people who are in that long, dark tunnel uh, where, where, where they feel like there's nowhere out, they, we need to extend a hand to them and they need to feel free to grab that hand and climb out of that tunnel. And uh, so, you know, I finally came to the conclusion that to, to honor my dad uh, and his memory, uh, I needed to speak out because if, if, um, if we can save even a few lives, if we can touch a few people who uh, otherwise might feel like they're all alone and uh, without any means of, uh, of addressing their problems, then uh, that will have been part of his legacy. And so, um, you know, I continue uh, to speak about it. the Franny, the thing that, uh, and I wrote about this, the thing that was so ironic about my dad's suicide was, uh, you know, he was, um, he was a mental health professional. He was a psychologist. And, you know, I mean, uh, I was a 19 year old kid when all this happened, but my most vivid memory of his, uh, funeral was all of, uh, of these patients who were there. And, uh, they obviously didn't know how he had died. And that certainly wouldn't have been helpful to them at that moment. But, um, he, uh, but they came up one after another, or maybe it would have been helpful to them. I shouldn't even say it like that, but they came up one after another and said, Hey, you know, your dad saved my life. And, uh, you know, I so appreciated him and it just, it, it just was so, uh, sad that he could, uh, help other people through these difficulties, but could not find his way through his own. So did you view it as a sign of weakness for you or a betrayal to your father to go public? Was, were you fearful that you would suffer a similar uh, mental illness? What was it that was well, the well, I mean, there are all, all of those things, all of those things. But I, I think that, you know, I sort of, in, I, I, um, I embrace this notion that, uh, somehow it was a source of shame, you know, that, that the way he, uh, died and, um, and, uh, I didn't want, I didn't want people to think of him that way. And Franny, the, the absolute truth is, um, you know, there was, there was an element of embarrassment, you know, and I'm embarrassed now to acknowledge that, but I have to be honest with myself. Uh, you know, I didn't want people to know how my dad had died. And, um, you know, again, it took a very long time for me to come to grips with it. As for, um, as for, did I worry about myself in that context? You know, um, uh, my dad was my role model. He was my hero. Uh, he was really a wonderful guy. He was a, an immigrant, Jewish immigrant from Eastern Europe, came over when he was 12, you know, um, had a, 
I learned after because he never talked about it, perhaps part of the problem, but he, uh, you know, he saw unspeakable uh, horrors as a young man, you know, people lying dead in the street and ultimately his home was blown up. Where did he grow uh, up and what was he a victim? Of well, it is now part, it's now, it's now, yes, it was during the pogroms and it was, it, it's now, it's a, it's a, a town called Hoten. It's, it's, it's part of um, Ukraine now. It wasn't then. Uh, and, um, uh, and he, you know, he and his family, their home was blown up. They, 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 they knew they had to flee. Um, he and his, in all the violence, he and his parents were separated, uh, and he and his younger cousins, he led them to a, his parents told them, if we get separated, we, we let's, we will meet at this place, which was, you know, 60 miles away by the Black Sea, I'm approximating the distance, um, and uh, somehow he got his cousin, he and his cousins to that place and reunited with his parents and they came over and, um, and, you know, he was a lovely guy. You're, you're a, you're a huge sports fan as I am. Uh, my dad, um, I think he learned how to play baseball before he learned English. And he, um, he played baseball with Hank Greenberg in the Bronx wow. and he be- he became an all-city pitcher and actually went to college on a baseball scholarship. Wow, in those you know, days. Wow. Yeah, six years after he uh, after he arrived in the States, uh, he was pitching for LIU, Long Island University. And he, you know, he he was always uh he kicked around a lot. He 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 went, you know, he 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 wasn't good enough to play professional ball. He played semi-pro ball. He fell and injured his arm and never really recovered from that as a, as a pitcher. And, uh, but he went to art school. He went to school to study philosophy. He worked in his father's shoe store in the, which ultimately was in Brooklyn. They, they all moved to Brooklyn. And, um, you know, then he, uh, he was in the service and under the GI bill, he became a psychologist and um, he uh, uh, worked at the VA at first and then, you know, just saw patients, but he was a lovely guy, just funny and warm and, you know, always there for me. So when you ask, um, do you worry, you know, when you're a kid and your, your hero takes his own life, you you do think to yourself, well, maybe maybe I will end up in that long dark tunnel too, uh, and it's something that I've you know struggled with. I I think I've you know I've overcome that to to a large degree, but uh, it was certainly there, and it was painful to talk about. Uh, it was painful to talk about for that reason, and. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think that was part of it as well. Tell us about the day, if you can, if it's not yeah. too painful, yeah. that you learned and you got that awful knock on the door when you were a student at the University of Chicago. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it, the, 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 the hardest part about writing about this is I, I have to go back and revisit the, these uh, 
but but it's important to revisit that day. It was uh, shortly before Memorial Day in 2000, I'm sorry, 1974. And um, I lived in, a, in an apartment just off campus at the University of Chicago. Not sure the building, I think the medical center sits on where that building used to be or part of the medical center. And um, I was home in the afternoon. I had a roommate. Uh, one of my roommates was home as well. I remember I was listening to uh, the, an Almond Brothers album and reading um, the song Jessica, which is one of my favorite songs it was playing. And there was a knock on the door and it was a police officer. My uh, roommate answered. And as you might imagine in the early 70s, when a police officer knocked on your student apartment door, um, your first instinct is, uh-oh, one of us is in trouble. Um, and he didn't want to let the police officer in. And I heard the police officer say to my roommate, um, please, son, I'm not here for what you think. I, I have to give him some news because he was asking for me. Um, and he came in, and I remember we stood in this darkened sort of foyer of the apartment, and um, he, because there were no windows there, and he um, he asked me if I was David Axelrod. I said I was. He said, "Are you? Is your father Joseph Axelrod?" And then I knew that something terrible had happened, and I, I acknowledged that I was. And he said, uh, "You know, I'm sorry." to tell you this, but your father is dead and um, the New York City police need you to come back to identify his body. And it's still surreal when I say those words. I just, you know, it was like an out-of-body experience, like how this can't be. Did the and, officer uh, tell you the circumstances? Well, I asked. You know, I said, well, what happened? And he was very hesitant. And I have to say, I want to talk about the officer in a second, because we talk a lot about police. And <clears throat> that was a, you know, he was he was really as sensitive as could be. But and he was reluctant to say, you know, and he you could see he paused when I asked him the question. <clears throat> and he said, I'm sorry, son, they, they think it's a suicide. And, you know, I later learned that you know it was uh, almost uh, indisputably you know the scene was such that it was very clear that uh, he had taken his own life and then franny i my mind ran to um a conversation that i had with him um just the last time i talked to him and um in retrospect there's no doubt that he was calling to say goodbye, but I didn't realize it then. It just seemed like an odd call. And he what called, did he say? And how he was said, the tone? He said, um, he said, you know, I just want you to know I'm so proud of you. And I know now that you and your sister are going to be okay. You're going to do well in life. And my parents had been split up when we were young. And, um, you know, I had a very kind of tumultuous childhood and, um, not always easy. And I wasn't easy. I was like a, one of those, uh, I'd be diagnosed as, um, you know, ADHD today, I'm sure. And um, so there were a lot of, you know, problems. And he was my rock during that whole period. You know, he lived, I lived in, 
a housing development called Stuyvesant Town in New York. And he lived on uh, about a mile away on 33rd Street and in and Lexington Avenue, and um, and I would, you know, I would walk up there to see him. His office was nearby there. I'd walk up whenever I needed to chat, um, and he was always there for me. But he, this was just a, an odd conversation, and he said, you know, I I know you can be all right, and I'm really proud of you, and I want you to know that. And and it was just out of the blue, and I said, well, thanks, Dad. I, I that's, that's really nice. I appreciate it. And we hung up and I realized, you know, he knew what he was going to do. This was, this was, you know, days, days and days before the actual, um, the actual uh, suicide. And um, I had no idea then that he was, you know, that he was calling to say goodbye. And that I think he was saying, I think you're long. I think you're going to be okay in life, you know, and I'm sorry, I can't be there for you anymore. I, I can't go on. And um, I, th- I think that's what he was saying, you know, without saying it. Um, but getting back to this, this, the day uh, that the police officer came, he, he could not have been under the circumstances. He could not have been more sensitive. Uh, and a few years later, you'll appreciate this. Um, uh, I was uh, working at the Tribune, and I was uh, like uh, on the desk, on the city desk at night on a weekend, uh, and I was calling around. Um, maybe I wasn't even, uh, yeah, I was just, I was reporting, I wasn't editing, I was, I, I was calling around on a police story, and I called a police uh, st- uh, uh, station, and he answered the mm. phone, or he... I knew you were going to say that, wow. And he said to me... Um, Hey, are you the are you the young man that I saw a few years ago at the University of Chicago? You know, I brought some news about your dad. And I said, Yeah, I am. And he said, I'm so happy to hear from you. I'm so happy you landed in such a good spot. And uh, I always wondered what happened to you. Oh, wow. And and I was really I was so moved by that. I saw a police officer in the worst moment of my life. Uh, behave in a way that um, was so important to me and just with basic human kindness and decency. And I'll always remember that. So you fly Um, back to New York and you identify your dad's body. Was there a note? No. And I didn't identify his body because at the end of the day, because my parents were divorced, they reached out to me. But a friend of the family volunteered to eat, so you shouldn't have to do that. So we drove to the morgue, and he said, don't go in. And he went in and identified the body. And no, there was no note. And how did that feel? Did that feel like a betrayal, or did you recall back to the conversation? I didn't feel betrayed. I I didn't feel betrayed um, because um, I felt my father had given me so much. And, you know, my feeling was he hung in there um, as long as he could um, for, for, for me and uh, for my sister. But I was six years younger and I was the more needy of the two because she was already, you know, um, she was already launched in life. You know, she had a career and so on. Um, but um, 
I don't know. I, I've asked myself a lot that question. Do I, did I feel, you know, am I deluding myself because of my feelings about my dad? Uh, you know, I don't feel, I never felt betrayed. I don't feel betrayed now. I feel grateful for the 19 years I had with him. And my only, my sadness is obviously for his suffering, but also uh, for the fact that he never met my wife, Susan. He never met my kids. Um, he would have loved them and they would have loved him. And that makes me very sad. Um, you know, was there an um, anger that he left this way? There, you know, there was, I, 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 I searched myself and searched myself and I don't, and I don't feel that I don't, I, I never, I never felt that. I, you know, I felt loss. I mean, there was a huge hole in my life, you know, um, and I think the thing that happens, and I'm sure others who've gone through this at an early age probably have experienced it, is um, uh, that um, I, I felt immediately, immediately, like my childhood was over. I felt like I was an adult, that I was on my own now. I was sort of estranged from my mom. And um, I knew that, you know, from that point on, I needed to navigate the future myself. And, you know, um, and I was very much focused on becoming a journalist. And, um, you know, I, I kind of plowed myself into that. I, I left school um, when my dad died, and I took a bunch of incompletes. Uh, because I couldn't, I couldn't finish. We were right at the end of the year, and I just couldn't finish. That became a little bit like a narcotic for me, and I ended up accumulating a bunch of those because I was spending all my time trying to become uh, a journalist and being a journalist. And um, uh, so, you know, at the end of those, um, at the end of my time, I had like a mad dash at the end of my college years to finish, you know, like 10 courses in a quarter or something, because I had an internship at the Chicago Tribune at the end of that, uh, at that, the summer I graduated and I, there was no way I was going to miss that. And, um, and Franny, when I went to the Tribune, I found family there, I found community there, and I found role models you know, and father figures uh, there. We, we just lost uh, one of them, uh, someone, you know, Bernie Judge, uh, who uh, went to the Sun-Times after the Tribune and then the Chicago Law Bulletin. And Bernie was an incredible source of strength. And, you know, he was a mentor to me. Uh, and, but there were, there were others in that newsroom as well and colleagues, and they just, you know, it could not have been a better place for me to be two years after I went through this trauma because um, they enveloped me like a family and they provided a role, you know, the mentorship that I needed. And um, I'm just so grateful that um, I was able to, uh, that I was able to uh, have that experience. It, 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 it helped fill part of that whole in my life. Did you break the chain and seek help yourself, though? Because this is an awful lot to deal with as a teenager. 
Not as not as soon as I should have. Why? Not as soon as I should. Again, have. the stigma. Yeah, I think that was part of it. Part of it was, um, you know, uh, I don't need help. What's wrong with me? You know, um, later in life, you know, I I, I started seeing a, a therapist and unpacking uh, some of this, um, and I regret that I didn't do it sooner. This whole uh, issue is so important now as we come off a pandemic that has isolated so very many people, fueled depression, not only among older people, but among young people who've been so yeah, and isolated. No, no question about it. Um, you know, uh, I think the latest statistics made from last year, uh, almost 48,000 people uh, died by suicide, and that is... Um, you know that those numbers are are up ten. It's the tenth leading cause of death, and among young people, it's the second leading uh, cause of death. And you know that is compounded by the pressures of social media. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Which for a lot of young people, you know, you see a lot of bullying and hazing online. Uh, that's been hard, um, uh, particularly uh, for. Uh, young girls but not not certainly not exclusive uh to that and uh yeah this is um you know this is a major public health problem and we should be talking uh openly about it and we are uh, yeah yeah and we are and i appreciate the opportunity to do that um uh but you know uh, among adults with a diagnosed mental health condition, uh, 44% didn't receive mental health services in the past year. Um, uh, 90% of the people who committed who, who took their own lives uh, had a diagnosable mental health condition at the time of their death. Uh, and we have a huge shortage. I was just watching a piece this morning on the Today Show uh, about mental illness among the young. And, you know, we have like 8,500 child psychiatrists uh, in this for this entire country. Um, uh, and, you know, 73% of the country doesn't have enough mental health providers to serve residents in their area. Um, so, you know, we, we really, we, we've taken strides. I think people are being more open. We are you know, we are recognizing mental health. It is being covered. Um, mental health services are being covered uh, more readily by law and practice. But um, we we just have a long a long way to go in terms of uh, uh, providing, in terms of not just removing the stigma that 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 prevents people from seeking the help they need, but also making sure that they can get the help uh, that they need, which is just. Uh, just just so important. I know from my own experience, my husband had a mother who made numerous attempts at suicide, both when he was a young child and a young adult. The pain of that never goes away. Has it for you? No, I mean, uh, I mean, I think about my dad all the time. And I think about him um, a lot this time of year, it used to be, as Memorial Day approached that I would become deeply depressed. And I recognize, I recognize that now in retrospect, that this was a, you know, it's still a, a difficult time. I will 
I watch the dates on the calendar and I don't know exactly because the coroner couldn't say exactly what date my father died, but, um, but I know it was around the 28th of May. And I look at the calendar uh, as the days advance in May and, you know, that I, I can't help but think about him, but I think about him all the time. He was such a, such a presence in my life. And all I, uh, you know, what I think about a lot is, you know, what would my dad say? What would, what would my dad do? And, you know, hope even all these years later, you know, almost half a century later, I still want to conduct myself in a way that would make him proud. And that, you know, and, and for him, that was never about um, what I achieved professionally. It was really about um, how I conducted Character. myself as a, as a person, you know? And um, so, yeah, no, you never, you never get over it, Fran. It's, um, uh, but, you know, I hope to use the, my own experience as a way to, uh, uh, and, and his experience as a way to, uh, to, to help others. You know, one, one thing I wanted to mention um, is, uh, you know, we have this high suicide rate here. Part of the reason is the availability of guns, which we in Chicago you know, know from so many different angles, but, you know, half the suicides in this country are uh, with firearms. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and 60% of firearm deaths for all the horrific mayhem we see on the streets of Chicago, 60% of firearm deaths in this country uh, are from uh, are, are as a result of suicide. So the the ready availability of tools to take um, to take one's life um, is uh, is a tragic uh, uh, part of this whole discussion. My own father suffered from depression, from obsessive compulsive disorder, from alcoholism. Never got help. What do you want to tell people? who are similarly suffering from mental illness and depression as we close this mental health month with this, this talk we're having, what do you want yeah. to tell people? Uh, my, the, the most important thing is uh, reach, talk about, talk about what you're going through, reach out, uh, reach out to, to uh, people you, um, the people that you, uh, Love and trust. Share with them what you're going through. Uh, there, uh, and I, I don't have it in front of me, but uh, there is a suicide uh, uh, prevention lifeline uh, that you can call. Um, and uh, uh, you know, but but don't keep this to yourself. Don't hold in. Uh, those things that are really you're struggling with, uh, reach out for help, reach out for professional help, but also be open about what you're going through. And if you are a family member of someone who's going through that, encourage people to talk and, and be open about uh, what you're going through uh, as well. We just need to take this out of the shadows and we need to, to make it um, uh, comfortable for people to share 
uh, and to, you know, because if we don't, inevitably, there are going to be tens of, of thousands of people every year who feel like they're alone and there's no recourse. There's no way out of that long, dark tunnel. So, you know, that that's my message to uh, people out there. There is nothing. It is it is part of the human condition uh, to suffer from mental illness, to suffer from depression. Um, you know, uh, uh, 12 million Americans report having uh, serious thoughts about uh, about suicide. That's a large number of people. We're, you, you know, you're not alone, alone out there if you're if you're struggling uh, with mental uh, illness or mental health issues, and uh, get them treated as surely as you would get. Uh, you know, a polyp treated or a cancer treated or uh, a heart condition treated or a broken arm treated, uh, you know, get help. And then to the mental and to, to our, to the public health community, I'd say we need to train up more people uh, and, uh, you know, encourage more people to take up this work because uh, there is a critical shortage of, uh, of counseling and therapy and uh, uh, and and psychiatry, uh, and uh, we need more mental health professionals. David Axelrod, my dear friend, thank you so much for sharing these personal memories, as painful as they may be. I hope they serve as a guiding light to people out there. I dare say, I didn't know your father, but I dare say he would be very proud. And we will see you all next week. 